If you'll take uh, your copy of God's Word there, you can feel free to use a copy there in the pew uh, and turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 6. 1 Samuel chapter 6. And as you do, I'm sure that I am not the only one this morning that would express this, but it seems like all the pollen on earth just decided to rise up in opposition to us this weekend. And, um, man, my throat is sore, just allergies just wreaking havoc. But uh, I have more of a voice this, uh, this morning than I did last night, praise the Lord. Um, but um, this is going to be a good thing for you um, because this is going to cause me to probably slow down. Um, and it's going to cause me to have a ceiling to just how animated I get, so, um, which are both things that I desperately need to work on. So. Maybe it's just the Lord doing what he needs to do uh, to, to get me in line this morning. Um, but I appreciate your prayer um, as we work through this passage together. Um, God is holy. I'll say that again. God is holy. You know, that's one of the first things that we learn about God. Uh, right now, if we were to go to a group of our children in the church and we say, who is God? Share some attributes of God or some of his characteristics. Um, I would almost guarantee that one of the first few that would be mentioned is what? God is holy. Seems like we learned that from a young age, as we should. We should teach our kids that God is holy, and we should come to learn from an early age that God is holy. But you know, if you sit and ponder that for very long, you realize that I may know that, but do I really know that? There's a difference there, isn't there, between knowing something and knowing something, right? Just being aware of the reality of something. God is holy. This means that he is wholly set apart. He is wholly unique. He is wholly pure. You think about the intensity of God's holy holiness, the intensity, the white hot heat of God's holiness and understanding just who he is as fiercely pure. I think the question is the right question in Exodus 15, verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, Awesome and glorious deeds, doing wonders. That is a rhetorical question, which means that it anticipates the answer. Who is like you, O God? And the answer is no one. That's what it means that God is holy. There is none like him. He is holy other. It's not just another one of God's attributes. It's not just one of a list. And sometimes I'm afraid that we kind of list it out with other attributes. And so some of God's attributes get detached from the truth that God is holy. Because we say that God is love, and then we like to define what love is. And we try to paint God into a corner and forsake his holiness, when in reality the truth is God is love, but his love is a holy love. Jen Wilkins says it this way, No other attribute is joined to the name of God with greater frequency than holiness. The truth is, as we are created in the image of God, as we are image bearers, part of what that means is that we share in some of the attributes of God. 
There are some of his attributes that are his alone, that we are not. But we come to share in some of his attributes. But this is what sets God apart in the way that he has those attributes, is that holiness pervades all of them. So it is true that God is love, and it is true that he has created us with the capacity to love, but God in his love is a holy love. God has created us with the capacity to be faithful, to mirror his attribute, to mirror him, to represent him and his faithfulness. But God is holy in his faithfulness. Are we understanding this? That God is wholly unique in his attributes and in his person, who he is. R.C. Sproul, who I have learned so much about the holiness of God, writes this. There's only one attribute of God that is ever raised to the third degree of repetition in Scripture. There's only one characteristic of Almighty God that is communicated in the superlative degree from the mouths of angels, where the Bible doesn't simply say that God is holy or even that He is holy, holy, but that He is holy, holy, holy. The Bible doesn't say that God is mercy, 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 or love, 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 or justice, 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 or wrath, 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 but that he is holy, holy, holy. This is a dimension of God that consumes his very essence. When it is manifest or revealed to Isaiah, we read that at the sound of the voices of the seraphim, the doorpost, the thresholds of the temple itself shook and began to tremble. Do you hear that? Inanimate, lifeless, unintelligible parts of creation in the presence of the manifestation of the holiness of God had the good sense to be moved. And then he asked this question. How can we, made in his image, be indifferent or apathetic to his majesty. God alone is holy. So I know that we know this this morning. The question is, do we know this this morning? And we're going to see the difference in today's passage. The problem in light of the truth, the reality that God is holy, is that we are sinful Again, to quote R.C. Sproul, he says this, Sin is cosmic treason. Sin is treason against a perfectly pure sovereign. It is an act of supreme ingratitude toward the one to whom we owe everything, to the one who has given us life itself. Have you ever considered the deeper implications of the slightest sin? What are we saying to our Creator when we disobey Him? Even at the slightest point, we are saying no to the righteousness of God. We are saying, God, your law is not good. My judgment is better than yours. Your authority does not apply to me. I am above and beyond your jurisdiction. I have the right to do what I want to do, not what you command me to do. This is what sin is. And I have no doubt that all of us would agree, yes, we know that. But do we know that this morning? We just saying the truth that it's his breath that fills our lungs. And so we are held accountable for the way that we use every breath and every breath is to be given back to him for his glory. Now, think about just how much of our breaths fail to do that. 
Psalm 5, 4 says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. You see, God's presence is both the place of our greatest pleasure and satisfaction, and it is also the place of our greatest danger. We've seen that over the past couple of weeks, as Gerald has highlighted that a few different times. But as we pause to consider, why is it then, God, that you have created us? What are your intentions for us? We are reminded of his good intentions. I've quoted this before, but I will again this morning. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, the very first question that's there, what is the chief end of man? And here's the deal. We usually answer that with the first part of this answer. We always say man's chief end is to glorify God, but there's more. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Friends, we have been created to enjoy the presence of God forever. That is God's good intentions for us. He created us so that we might know Him, so that we might have Him, so that we might enjoy fellowship in Him and have life and experience life in Him. This is why He has created us. But now His holiness is so intense toward anything that is not holy, it's the most dangerous place that we as sinners can be. So what is the answer to this? Is that it? God created us to enjoy His presence forever. Does that mean that in our sin we can't have that? We can't experience that? No, this is the gospel. (laughs) That God is working through the person and work of Jesus to restore rebellious traitors to right relationship with Him. So that those He redeems can once again enjoy Him forever. Brothers and sisters, this is God's objective in redemption that I think is summarized so well in 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. He came to be in our place, to stand in our place. But listen to the objective, that He might bring us to God. So God's good intentions are dashed with sin. And now, in light of His holiness, all we can do is cower and flee. But He has not left us in that state. He has condescended to us to do everything that was necessary to redeem and reconcile us to the Father so that we may dwell in the light of His holiness, in His presence forever. This is the gospel. And all through the unfolding story of the Bible, we see, I think one of the most beautiful themes that that we can trace through the story of the Bible is is the theme of God's presence. And we see there in, in Genesis 3, after two chapters of the man and the woman just dwelling in perfect relationship with God right there in the garden, chapter 3 changes everything with the entrance of sin into the story, doesn't it? At the end of chapter 3, what happens? God banishes the man and the woman out of the garden that he had created for them out of his presence. I believe so they might know the consequences of this. Not only that, but God's holiness is so intense they could not continue to live in his presence and live. So we see banishment. And then the rest of the story is how God is working his way back. The presence of God is coming to us And so we see this move throughout Scripture, and at this point of the story in 1 Samuel, we see that God's presence is manifested how? In the ark. The ark. And here, the ark is the symbol of God's mediated presence. Now, this used to confuse me as a child. I would think, okay, I'm told that God is omnipresent and that He is everywhere, but I'm told He lives in this box. (laughs) 
Right? Well, it's not as if the entirety of God dwells in this box. The box was symbolic. It was the symbol of God's mediated presence. God has told these, pe- these people, these wicked people that God has chosen, that do not deserve to be in his presence. He has stated to them in this covenant that he has made to them, I will be your God and you will be my people. What mercy, what grace, that God, that he is restoring his presence among us is so much mercy as should crush us, the thought of it. But God has revealed this or shown this in this Ark of the Covenant that is the symbol of God's mediated presence. And it is a constant reminder of God's terrible presence. But it is also a reminder of his incredible mercy and grace. We're going to see a key question from our passage this morning that I think all of us should come to grapple with. It is a good question. And the question is, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And once again, I think that question is a rhetorical one. And none of us are holy. None of us within ourselves can stand before God, before the holiness of God. We have seen so far in the past couple of chapters in 1 Samuel that God will not allow himself to be anyone's good luck charm. If you'll remember back to chapter 4, the Israelites go out into battle against the Philistines and they find themselves being defeated by the Philistines. And it was like, oh yeah, the ark. Maybe if we go get the ark and we pull it into battle with us, then, then maybe we'll win. And that is not a proper recognition of the presence of God, is it? They wanted to bring it in to turn the tides of the battle instead of rightly responding to this holy God. And we see what happens with that. Ultimately, the Israelites are are defeated and the ark is taken captive. But in chapter 5, as we see the ark being taken captive into uh, the, the Philistine territory there, that God will also not be anyone's trophy. And we see what happens there as God embarrasses the Philistines by embarrassing their chief god, Dagon. Over a series of nights, the priests come back in and find Dagon face down and then find him face down with no arms and no legs and his head cut off, right? God is manifesting his presence even to the Philistines there. He will not be anyone's trophy. In today's passage, we will see that God also will not allow himself to be anyone's novelty. He will not allow himself to be anyone's novelty. Will you bow with me in prayer? And just in the quietness and stillness of the moment, I want us to pray in accordance with what we've sung and what we've declared and what we will see in God's word. I just want to ask us all just to take a couple of moments to ask the Lord to search us, to try us, to know our hearts, see if there be any false or wicked way in us. Just prepare our hearts to go into God's word together. So, Father, help us to recognize just the mercy and grace that you show us this morning. Lord, that even in the midst of our sin, we have gathered here together to be in your presence to worship you. And God, we are so thankful for Jesus this morning. Because his standing is our standing if we have responded in faith to him. And so, Father, we're thankful today that if we are in Christ 
We stand before you not as rebels and children of your wrath, but as children of God. Restored and redeemed. God, we thank you for that today. Lord, I pray that you would give us an awareness or an increased awareness of your holiness. God, I pray that that wouldn't just be something that we know cognitively, but Lord, that would be something that we know with our minds and something that we know with our hearts and something that we know with our bodies. That we are constantly aware of your holiness. But God, I pray that because of faith in Christ, we would not cower in fear in light of your holiness, but we would have a holy reverence for your holiness, even as we are restored and and in union with Christ this morning. So God, I pray that you'd help us to assess our hearts, God. Help us to have a right response to the reality of who you are and to your presence and to your holiness. And we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for your spirit that helps us in understanding your word and applying it to our lives, and indeed we pray that you would do that through your spirit this morning in our hearts. So we thank you for this time. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. So first, let's look at the response of the Philistines. And this is what we're going to see this morning. We're going to see that there is a response by the Philistines to the very clear presence and holiness of God. So we're going to see the response by pagans, but we're also going to see in the second half of the chapter, we're going to see the response of the Israelites, God's people to the presence and holiness of God as it's manifested before them. Um, Chapter 5 ends with this scene that we see um, of God overthrowing Dagon, embarrassing Dagon before the Philistine people, and already in their hearts they're wanting to just do away with this God, do away with this ark, and come to chapter 6, and look how chapter 6 begins there in verse 1. It says, The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven Months. One commentator I read said, we cannot overestimate the tragedy of that statement. That the ark of God, the symbol of his covenant presence with his people, is taken away to a foreign place, set up in a foreign temple, and it is there for seven months. And later when we see the return of the ark, it's as if the people of Israel are just okay with that. They've just kind of relegated that to be the new normal, that the ark has been taken away and nobody's really doing anything about it. Their army has already suffered a great blow. Maybe they were incapable, but there doesn't seem to be an attitude of wanting to get the ark back. The ark is there for seven months. Look at verse 2. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. They said, if you send away the ark of uh, of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering, that you will be healed, and it will be known to you uh, why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, what is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? Let's stop right there for just a moment. Do we see this interplay, this conversation between the Philistine lords and these priests, these holy men that they would regard as holy, coming in and asking them, what shall we do? We are suffering the consequences of having this ark here and we want to send it away, but what shall we do? And you hear the, you hear the answer of the, of the religious leaders in, um, in, in the Philistine land there. They tell them there's an interesting idea here that they ought to send it with a guilt offering. Isn't that interesting? That a pagan people would say, don't send it, don't, don't just send it back. You need to send it back with a guilt offering. And this is an important aspect of the law of Moses. But I don't believe that this was indicating right belief in the presence of this God. And indeed, we'll see that it's not right belief. They just wanted the consequences to go away. 
And so this is a question of pragmatism to the religious leaders. It's not a right response to the presence and holiness of God. It is a pragmatic response that they recognize that they are suffering and they believe that it is probably because this box is here. And I say probably because even the priests are going to say, perhaps if you take it away, the consequences will go away. So they see this act of God and they respond in a pragmatic way by asking, how do we send it back? And the idea is to send it back with a guilt offering. And there is an implicit, possibly even an unconscious acknowledgement by the Philistines that they had incurred a debt against the God of Israel that must be repaid. So at some level, they understand that we must appease this God in order for the consequences to go away, to let him know that we are sorry for bringing the ark here and we want to send it away. So we'll send this guilt offering. But here's the question. How can you repay a debt you cannot assess to a God you do not know? Well, we see the answer in what they did, and it is comical, as we saw last week, as Gerald already highlighted for us. Look back at verse 4. And they said, what is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? And they answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice. You can chuckle. We can chuckle in church. That's something to chuckle about. Who in the world would come up with this answer? We need to send a guilt offering. Well, what is the offering? Uh, how about golden tumors and golden mice? Notice what it says here. According to the number of the lords of the Philistines... For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. And then here's the statement. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off of you and your gods and your lands. So we see here that during these seven months, it wasn't as if the only thing that happened was the whole episode with Dagon. That there have come these plagues as a consequence of the ark being there in Philistia. And we see recognition of this. Ongoing plagues, ongoing consequences. And notice how it's summarized there in the end there. It says, perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. God's power and presence had been manifest in all of these ways. He had manifest his power in light of his treatment of their God. He has manifested his presence in the pain and the consequences felt by the lords. And he has manifested his presence now through something going on in the land. And most commentators believe that the reason why they made the golden mice was to signify that there had been a plague of mice that had come in and just ravaged their crops. And so what is this? This is an attempt to appease this God by sending golden offerings that represent the plagues that they want carried away. They recognize to some degree that there is guilt and that that guilt needs to be responded to to this God. But that's as far as it goes. It is a response that's cased in ignorance. Notice verse six. This is the religious leaders continuing these questions to the Pharaoh or to the uh, to the uh, Philistine lords. Verse six. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts, after he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? That's a curious question, isn't it? We've already seen allusion already in an earlier chapter to the episode that happened in Egypt and the exile. What was said there? That God would move in such a way that everyone would know that he is God. 
So God has already manifested his presence. He's already revealed his presence in what he did in Egypt. And it has been known far and wide the power of this God. And so what do the religious leaders say? They say, hey, listen, it didn't go well for the Egyptians when they tried and tested this God. So if we want the consequences to go away, let's just fast forward to the end of the episode and let's send them away and let's give them gifts to take to their God so that, that, that God's presence may lift from us and so the consequences may lift from us. The rendering of this question goes this way. Why should you make heavy your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh made heavy their heart? You remember Gerald telling us of the emphasis that's made on the weight of God's holiness, the weight of his glory. This is a theme that runs all the way through these chapters. At time and time again, we are taken to an understanding of God's glory as this thing that's very weighty. And so it's even here in the question, why should you make heavy your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh made heavy their heart? And once again, we see that it's a question of pragmatism. Just do whatever we need to do to, to send this God away, to, to make, to, to make a, appeasement for what we have done in bringing the ark here so that the consequences will abate. We see illustrations carry through here of the exile, of the Egyptians. This term for sending away is the exact same terminology that we hear Pharaoh using in sending away the Israelites. The Israelites in Egypt were not to leave Egypt empty-handed. Here, the presence of God, the ark, is not to leave empty-handed. And there's the statement that we will know something of him. If the ark leaves and the consequences abate, then we will know that it is God doing this. So this theme of God's glory, this word kabod, runs all the way through this. The weight of God's glory being felt in every heart, in every mind in this episode. Beginning in verse 6 again, why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, they did not send the people away and they departed. Now then take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke. And yoke the cows to the cart, but take them, uh, but take their calves home away from them. And take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put in a box at its side the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. So here we see that they do everything that they can do in order not to offend this God. They place the ark on a brand new cart, not a used cart, but a brand new cart. And they strap it to these milking cows. And they believe that the milking cows could possibly be an offering for the people to use when they receive it. They put the ark on the cart. They put the box of golden things beside the ark, it says. So they don't place it in the same place that the ark is. They are doing everything that they can conceive to try to not cause this God to grow any more angry at them. But they also set it up so that if the ark returned straight away, the only reason could be God. They put two milking cows to pull the cart that have never been yoked. So these cows have never pulled a cart before, and they've never pulled a cart together before. Now, I'm not a farmer, and I don't know how many wagons I've even been on, okay? But I would imagine that in order to get two animals to pull a cart in a way that you wanted to pull it, there has to be some time investment in that, right? But not only these cows have never been yoked, 
they also are milking cows. And they're going to take their calves from them and shut them up at home. Now, what do you think that a mama cow is going to want to do? Feed her children. Feed the calves. That's what that maternal instinct is going to carry them to do. So they know, hey, if this cart goes straight away to Beth Shemesh, then we will know beyond a shadow of a doubt that it is by God's hand that that happens. Let's see what happens. Verse 10. The men did so and took two milk cows and joined them at the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of the tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh. It's little things like that that we just tend to gloss over. Well, that's pretty cool. That's incredible. Because what does it show us? What does it display for us? What does it remind us of? What does it teach us that God is sovereign? That God is sovereign. And I want you to notice what it says here. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, about seven miles away, we're told, towards an elevated place through hills. They make a straight Highway, And it says this, lowing as they went. You know what? God took that cart where he intended it to go despite the cows. Because the cows were lowing the entire way because they wanted to be with their calves. It wasn't the cows that took the ark to Beth Shemesh. It was God. And therefore proving his existence and his power to the Philistines. What an incredible story. This is what I want us to see this morning. Well, let me, let me finish up. Verse 12. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. And notice, they turned neither to the right nor the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. What do you think they're thinking? Can you believe this? Here's what I want us to see about the response of the Philistines this morning. The response by the Philistines is one of, get this, reluctant appeasement. Reluctant appeasement. The Philistines did not want to get rid of the ark. That was their trophy. right? That was their trophy from war. And as Gerald taught us a few weeks ago, that when one, when, when, when one army overthrew another army, that was indicative of our God being more powerful than your God. They wanted to take this God and add it to their collection, but put it in a place lower than their God because their God had won the battle. They didn't want to get rid of it. But they were willing to appease the God by getting rid of it and giving offering so that the consequences would go away. And the truth is, even to this pagan people who defied God, God makes himself known to them. There's some grace in this. That he manifests his presence even to this pagan people, even to these pagan lords. He manifests his presence to them. And we can say that there was a recognition or at least a speculation concerning the presence of God, but it stopped short of repentance. It stopped short of humbling themselves before the presence of God. It stopped short of a right response to the holy presence of God. Once again, this was rooted in pragmatism. Their posture towards the presence of God was one that was pragmatic. They just wanted to be comfortable. They wanted the consequences to go away. And here's the truth, brothers and sisters. I've seen this play out again and again in our own day. We see this happen, do we not? 
that the diagnosis is given and all of a sudden the person who receives the diagnosis hasn't been in church for five years and all of a sudden they're back. Drives them back to the presence of God. Drives them back to want to worship. Maybe I need to be there. Right? And there's this fervent prayer that accompanies it that maybe the consequences will go away. The financial ruin happens and we run back to the presence of God. We've seen this even on a national scale as things have happened to our country and there's this great return to God. But at the end of the day, that's a pragmatic response that really isn't pursuing the presence of God in order to know Him, but just doing whatever we have to do to appease Him, to comfort ourselves. One commentator writes this, It is so easy for us sinners, Philistine or otherwise, to respond only to the pain and not to the truth of a situation. Our pain or immediate fears may be alleviated but the heads are no wiser and our hearts are no softer. And it breaks my heart to say that the times that I've seen this happen through my years in ministry at least, that when there's enough time that passes from the episode that caused the trauma or caused uh, the, the hurt or the pain, and when enough time has passed, that person falls away once again from the body of Christ. The worship goes away. All of a sudden, the recognition of need for God goes away. And here's the truth. When we fail to revere the holy presence of God, we will do all we can or all we must to remove His holy presence from us. And some do this by avoiding worship among His gathered people. Just can't handle the guilt of being there because I know when I'm there that I'm a sinner. And if I can remove myself from that, then I don't think about that anymore. I can have a more favorable view of myself. There doesn't want to be a humble recognition of the holiness of God, so we just remove ourselves from it. Some do this subconsciously, removing the reality of the presence of God from the practice of religion. We come and go through the motions, but we do not recognize the true presence of God. Or we'll reshape our image of God into something more tolerable or palatable. We will remove ourselves from the true presence of God and shape a God into something that we can live with or that we believe can live with us. Brothers and sisters, this response is insufficient. And it is eternally devastating. I think it's so sad that at the end of this, we see that the lords, when they see all of this take place, and they see a little bit more that we'll see in just a second, they just return back to Ekron. They just go home. The consequences have abated, but they're just still in the same posture towards God that they had from the beginning. And they have the same eternal ramifications that they face because of that. See, it does nothing to change their standing before him. And this is not how the holy God of the universe desires to relate to us. He doesn't want us just going through the motions or doing whatever we think we have to do to appease him so that we have his favor. His good intentions is that we would dwell in his presence forever. So the response of appeasement is not a right response. Second, let's look at the response of the people of Beth Shemesh. We see how the pagan Philistines respond. 
to the reality of God's holy presence. Now, how will the Israelites, God's chosen people, the ones who have a knowledge of God, given to them by God, how will they respond? Look at verses 13 through 16. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. I don't know about you, but when I read that, that tells me that life is just going on for them. And if they're reaping their harvest, that means that they have a harvest to reap, and perhaps they even think, hey, we didn't need God to do this in the the first place. They're just going on about life. They're reaping their fields. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua, the best Shemesh, and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord's. Or to the Lord. Verse 16, And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. Uh, one commentary writer says this, that in this verse, verse 13, as the ark returns to Beth Shemesh, we see the reversal of Ichabod. You remember that? That curse was pronounced as the ark had left and the glory of God had left the land. Now it is restored. Now it is brought back. And once again, it had nothing to do with the men of Beth Shemesh, did it? It was God himself that brought his presence back. And we see in the initial response uh, to the ark's return, joy. That they see the ark returned and they are joyful over this. We see that it comes to a field of a man named Joshua, again making allusion to the exile. So this theme runs all the way through here. It also is returned to Beth Shemesh, which is a city that had Levites. So Levites could properly uh, interact with the ark, and so that's all set up. The Levites come out and they do what they do to bring the ark out. They set it on this great stone to where everyone could see it, and they begin to worship. And we see joy in worship. We see joy in offering. So, so far, this is a pretty good response, right? Pretty good response so far. And then all of a sudden, verse 17 comes. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages, the great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua Beshemesh. A little bit more narration there to let us know about these golden things, about what the Levites did with the ark. Now verse 19. It's almost like a jerk. We're almost jerked in the narrative. All of a sudden everything's going well. They're worshiping. They're offering sacrifices. And then verse 19. And he struck some of the men of Beshemesh. Because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. The return of the ark did not signify that God was less terrifying than he had ever been. His return was not recognition that all was well with the people before God. And we see here that he is just as terrifying here as he had been in Philistia. Now, there is some difficulty with this verse. 
There is enough in this verse that's missing or broken that most, well, every scholar that I read this past week would say that something is missing here. Something has been lost in the translation through the years. Something is, something's going on here to where we cannot be 100% certain on anything that's, that's stated here. There's some question about the number, whether it was many thousands or whether it was 70. But it's interesting that the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, includes this statement in this verse. It says, but the sons of Jeconiah did not rejoice with the rest of the men of Beth Shemesh when they welcomed the ark of the Lord and he struck down 70 of them. So that's a whole new element to the story. So was it the men of Beth Shemesh by looking upon the ark? And by the way, some people say, well, they may have looked inside the ark. That's not what the, that's not what the text tells us. It says that they looked upon it. But the word, therefore, upon carries with the idea of looking upon with a lack of respect. They did not respect the holy presence of God. They looked upon it with derision in some way. So is that the, is that the story? Is, it the, is the men of Beth Shemesh who just looked on the ark with contempt? They didn't look at it and revere it as they ought? Or is it this group, the sons of Jeconiah, did not rejoice with the rest of the men? And they were just kind of apathetic towards the ark. I don't know. And I, don't, I didn't read anybody this week who was really settled on that. But regardless of that, the focus on this verse is not of the response of men. The focus and the weight is once again on the glory and holiness of God. That in some way, His holiness was not revered as it ought to be. Some way, His holiness was taken lightly. They had violated His holiness And as one commentator writes, God is not indifferent to our indifference. That statement has stayed with me since I read it. God's, uh, God is not indifferent to our indifference. And regardless of what's going on here, we see a display of God's holiness and power once again. This time to the Israelites in Beth Shemesh. Let's read verse 20. And we're going to read down through 7-2. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? There's the key question. This is their response. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? That's good, isn't it? Good response. Good question. Yes, that's how you should respond to God's holiness. And then the next question comes. And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eliezer to have charge of the ark of the Lord. And from the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Let's pull some things out of here. We see this key question. This key question that is a good question. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? That should be the question that's elicited from us when we come into the presence of holy God. The New English Bible renders this this way. No one is safe in the presence of the Lord, this holy God. To whom can we send it to be rid of him? This was the attitude, this was the response by the Israelites. And what we see is that at the end of the day, it's a very similar response to the Philistines. And this is not the only time that we see this kind of response to the reality of the holiness and power of God. If you'll think forward from Mark 5, there's this story, really cool story, where Jesus approaches the the area of the Gerasenes. 
and to one who has been demon-possessed for some time, and nobody could do anything with him. Is this story reminding you of this? And even before he gets to him, the demon recognizes Jesus as the Holy One of God and cowers before him. Just shows us the authority of God over all things. The supreme authority of God. Right? And the question is, what will you do with us? And then they beg Jesus to not destroy them or send them out of the country, but to send them into these thousands of pigs that are in the area. And so Jesus grants the request, casts them into the pigs, and the pigs throw themselves off a cliff. You remember this story? And so what happens? The one who is, who is released from this demon oppression, he runs to the town. He tells everybody about it. Other people that have witnessed it go and tell everybody what happened. And the townspeople come. And as they're listening to the account and as they're looking at the aftermath, what do they say to Jesus? Do you remember? They begged him to leave. Leave. They couldn't handle that. Instead of asking him, the right question, and what must we do in light of who you are? They just want him to go away. And I love the contrast in that verse. As the townspeople beg him to go away, what does the man who was demon-possessed do? He runs to Jesus. He wants to be with him. That's the response. What a contrast. So they, too, want to get rid of the presence of God. You see, under the weight of God's glory... The Philistines ask, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord to take it away? The Israelites, who was able to stand before the Lord, this holy God, a good question, and then and to whom shall he go up away from us? You see, there is a recognition once again of the reality of the presence and power of God. It's undeniable. They see God act to strike these men down because of their indifference or their irreverence towards the presence of God. But there is no self-examination. There is no heart assessment. There is no humbling themselves before the presence of God. There's no introspection into themselves because there is no desire truly to know this God. They just want Him to flee. His presence to go. See, we can forget that Yahweh is holy and that He does not conform to our expectation of an easy-going God. I think one of the greatest byproducts that happens when we come into the actual presence of God and we experience His presence is one of the first things that happens is it dashes these notions of God that we have in our mind that doesn't line up with who He's revealed Himself to be. And we find that the God that we have been worshiping is a false God. So what happens? Verses 1 and 2, the ark once again is moved. And we see there, at least in Kiriath-Jerim, it seems that the ark is treated in a much more reverential way. That it's taken to this house of Abinadab, and his son is consecrated. There's an awareness of the holy presence of God. He's going to have charge of the ark. And from the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time past 20 years. That's sad. 20 years. And this phrase is just... Stuck with me this week. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. God said, I will be your God and you will be my people. Not so that it would bring lamentation. So that they could experience the joy of his presence. And once again here we see that the people lamented. Even after the ark has been returned. 
With the Philistines, we saw in response of appeasement. I think we ought to lean into this, brothers and sisters. The response we see here, once again, falls short of a right response. I believe that it can be described as religiosity. Religiosity. That is a term that's been popularized lately. A, I don't know if it's a new term, but it's one that I have heard more often. What does that mean, religiosity? Well, there is a presence of religious zeal, but lacking true knowledge and recognition of the reality of God's holiness. Here's a more technical definition of what religiosity means. It's the sentiment of religion. It's an excessive susceptibility to religious sentiments or expressions of worship. But listen, it's unaccompanied by loyalty to divine law in daily life. And here's the truth. This term has been used quite often lately to speak of the evangelical church in the West. And before we balk at that, I think that there's some truth to it that we need to hear. There's a susceptibility to religious sentiment. There is an appearance of worship. There's an appearance of joy. There's an appearance of all of these things that we are very sensitive to. But at the end of the day, God makes little or no difference in our daily lives. I think this was the truth of the men at Beth Shemesh. I think that it was true of Israel at this time. And I think that it can be true of us today and is true of us today. If the other version of the story is true, and if it is the sons of Jeconiah that looked at the ark, but they looked at it with contempt, then we can say that the response is simply apathy. And I think those things go hand in hand. There's just indifference to the presence of God. It's entirely possible to do church all of our lives and be completely indifferent to the presence of God. Brothers and sisters, we need to hear this. That we can even become pros at doing church and doing corporate worship, but completely indifferent to the presence of God, completely indifferent to the holiness of God. But may we be reminded again that God is not indifferent to our indifference. And to bring back up something that Gerald introduced us to last week, either or both of these responses, either religiosity or apathy, I believe are products of syncretism. Products of syncretism. Gerald defined that a little bit last week. Let me define it a little further. It is the attempted reconciliation or union of different or opposing principles or practices. You see, syncretism is when we try to make our faith and our sin coexist. As if they both can be affirmed. And so what happens is we will tweak the faith to match the sin that we want to hold on to. Or it's when we want to uphold our faith or another philosophy or the cultural narrative around us. We'll tweak the faith to match that so that we can uphold both and have both. This is syncretism. And we know that this was a problem in Israel because not to steal Gerald's thunder in the next chapter when we see what the proper response to God's holiness is. Samuel is raised up and provides the leadership that they need for the time to point to the fact that you cannot properly respond to God without dashing the false gods that you also serve. And he names these gods. Listen, he names the god Baal and Ashtaroth. Now listen to this. Baal is the name for the male storm deity. The god of rain. Ashtaroth is the female fertility deity. 
that people look to not only for human reproduction, but reproduction of the land to grow crops. What do we see the men of Beshemesh doing when the ark comes back? They're reaping their what? Fields. Here's what I think happened. They were rejoicing to see the return of the ark. And all of them would have said that this God is our God, but functionally they were trusting in these false gods to bring about their livelihood. It's a syncretism. With their lips, they readily recited the Shema, that our Lord is one. But then functionally, they worshipped and bowed to the rain God and the harvest God to come together to make their crops plentiful. This is syncretism. The question is, do you really believe that what you believe is really real? You've heard me say that before, haven't you? Do you really believe that what you believe is really real? And I've said this before, how do we answer that question ultimately? It's not with our lips. It's with our lives. We will lay our lives out on what we truly believe is real. Despite what we say. How can we know what it is that we truly trust? We look at our lives. What does our lives say that we truly trust in? How do we know that we truly regard the reality of God's holiness and presence? Well, I think our our lives are going to be marked with consistent and continual repentance and a brokenness over sin. Paul Tripp writes an article about what he calls functional atheism, which I think is a key tenet to religiosity. Listen to what he says. He says, yes, we believe that God exists, that he created the heavens and the earth, that the Bible is accurate and that paradise awaits us, but we often live at a functional level as if there is no God. We worry too much, we control too much, we demand too much, we regret too much, we run after God replacements too much. We do all these things because we have forgotten God's presence, power, and glory. Did you get that word? We forgot God's presence, power, and glory. He says, if you look around and look at yourself, you'll see evidence of functional atheism everywhere in the lives of Christians. There's another side to functional atheism, he writes, that we need to be aware of. Maybe we aren't as extreme to assess our lives in a God-absent way, but perhaps the God we remember is small, distant, disconnected, uncaring, and seemingly unwise. In ways we don't realize, we experience trouble, not only because of the stress of life in a broken world, but also because of how we interpret the character, size, and strength of the God who rules that brokenness. What is our vision for who God is? We know that God is holy. Do we know that He is holy? We know that God is all-powerful. Do we know that God is all-powerful? Is He the place where our trust resides? Or are we guilty of religiosity? Are we guilty of indifference and apathy? Are we guilty of syncretism? In our culture today, it's commonplace for someone to be drenched in religiosity and yet trust in the gods of work and income on the functional level. 
trust in the gods of future financial security or personal safety on the functional level. Trust in the gods of status and peer pressure on the functional level. Trust in the gods of pragmatism on the functional level. Trust in the gods of comfort on the functional level. Trust in the God of politics and political power on the functional level. Trust in the God of self-resilience and self-autonomy on the functional level. Trust in the gods of performance or status of their children on a functional level. It's entirely possible to be drenched with religiosity and at the same time be swept up in the story the culture is writing itself instead of being aligned with the story of God. It's possible to be drenched with religiosity and at the same time be completely apathetic to the presence and holiness of God. You see, responses of appeasement, religiosity, apathy, and syncretism will not hold up under the weight of God's holiness and His goodness and His righteousness and His presence. It cannot withstand the weight of God's glory. We will either share in the weight of that glory for all of eternity or we will be crushed by it. And one thing is clear, we do not get to decide what the appropriate response to His holy presence is. But in His grace, He has revealed that to us. What the only proper response is. And the only proper response has been revealed to us by holy God to be repentance and faith anchored in a humble recognition and submission. Listen to what one commentator writes. He says, we need to share half of the attitude of Beth Shemesh's citizens. There is a sense in which it is dangerous to be in the presence of God. But we must not want him to go up away from us. We must regard his presence as our supreme joy and our supreme peril. This does not mean that we cannot be intimate with God. It means we cannot be familiar with him. Hear that distinction? Intimacy is able to call him father and tremble at the same time. And as it trembles, know that we are loved. And brothers and sisters, the only way toward that reconciliation is through Jesus. He is our only appeasement with God because he himself came to be our propitiation. To do everything that was necessary to earn the righteousness that we fail to live up to, we fall short of the glory of God in our sin. And then willingly, obediently, sufficiently go to the cross and become our sin. Take every drop of His wrath upon Himself so that it could be diverted off of us so that through Him we can have His standing of righteousness before God. Him becoming our sin, that great exchange. The Bible tells us that after he died, he was buried, and on the third day, he rose again to show two things as the exclamation point in history, that he is who he says he was, and everything that he did completely satisfied the Father on behalf of those who trust in him. This is the gospel, that God delights in revealing himself to us, and his good intentions are that we would abide in his presence for all of eternity, and he has made every provision for us to, ju- to do just that despite our sin. Here's some applications this morning that you can jot down. I'll post them later too. Number one, God is holy and He is omnipresent. He is holy 
And he is everywhere. He is holy and he is eternal. He is infinite. The question there is, do we believe this? Do we believe this? Number two, we serve an immeasurably powerful God whose victory does not depend on us any more than it depended on the people of Beth Shemesh. We need to hear that, I believe. God is omnipotent. You know what that means? It doesn't just mean that He is all-powerful. He is all-powerful to do all that He wills to do. He is victorious with or without us. Okay? He is victorious despite us. His promises will prevail. But this immeasurably powerful God desires for us to know His power. If, the, if we're in Christ, this is Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church, that you would, through the spirit of revelation and wisdom, that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened, illuminated to know what is the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us. Brothers and sisters, it is towards us if we are in Christ. He wants us to know that power. Maybe we need to pray that this morning. That we would know that. Number three, this is so important. Right worship is rooted in right knowledge of God. Right worship is rooted in right knowledge of God. Like what Jen Wilkins says, the heart cannot love what the mind does not know. Both of those things work together. Only in pursuit of knowing God do we increase in loving Him. And love, that's the fuel for our worship to Him. Not just as we gather on Sunday mornings, but in every aspect of our life. The Reformers spoke about faith or knowledge of God happening on three levels. Okay, um, I am not steeped in Latin, so if you are, excuse me for the way that I'll say these words. But they spoke of notitia which is just the, just the comprehension of the truth that God is there and God is holy. It's comprehending those truths. But then it has to go deeper than that to a census. And a census is a conviction that that is true. It's not just a comprehension that it's there, but it's a conviction that it is true. But brothers and sisters, listen to this. That is not enough. That is not enough. Even the demons look at Jesus and they are convicted that He is the Lord. Just comprehending those facts and having a conviction is not enough. We have to move on to the third stage, which is fiducia. It's trust. It's laying my life out on the reality that I've come to know that God is real and He is holy. And the gospel is true and good and right. Do you know Him? Right worship is rooted in right knowledge. Do you know God or are you settling for knowing about God? Do you have a desire to know God that compels you to pursue knowing Him more truly and more deeply? And brothers and sisters, listen, this is both an intellectual and an affectional struggle. We can't check our minds out and pursue knowing God. We have to pursue Him with our minds. And not only that, but there's going to cause internal struggles in our hearts. There are things that we love that we are going to have to abandon in order to love Him supremely. Pursuing knowing God is a struggle, but it is a struggle that is infinitely worth it. Don't just settle for knowing about Him. Number four, the enduring promises of false gods are hollow. They're hollow My question to you this morning would be, what such promises are you believing in currently? 
And then number five, we lose sober awareness to God's holy presence when we fail to intentionally abide in it. We lose that sober awareness of the reality of God's presence and holiness when we fail to abide in it. The key word there was you have forgotten. And when we get untethered from his word and untethered from his presence, it's not long at all until we begin to forget. And we become syncretists really quickly. And we begin to go through the motions of religiosity very quickly. And we become apathetic and indifferent to the presence of God very quickly. Hebrews 2.1 says this, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. You bow your heads and close your eyes with me this morning. We're going to have a time of worshiping together in response. And by the way, I want to remind you that our response isn't just in coming forward and kneeling at the altar, although you are invited to do that this morning. If the Lord is working on your heart and in your heart and you feel compelled to come down, JT and I will both be here at the front to uh, speak with you if you'd like that or us to pray with you. We'd be happy to do that. And the altar is open, but don't come into an understanding that the only way that we respond is by coming forward. We respond even in the way that we sing now. These truths that we sing about God, we are responding in our hearts to those truths. So I pray that this would be a time of response for us. So God, I pray that you would help us, as Paul prayed for the Ephesians, that you would illuminate the eyes of our hearts, Lord, to know the reality of who you are. God, that we would see you for who you really are. God, forgive us, forgive me. For so often forgetting the reality of your, your holiness, Lord. Forgive me for trying to take up in my own strength so much of my life. Trusting that my self-resilience is enough. Lord, forgive me for reshaping my image of you to, to match something that I can be okay with. Lord, forgive me for so often living as a functional atheist. God, I pray that you would mold us into a people that is constantly aware of your holy presence. And God, I pray, thanking you for the the gift that we are to one another in that. So God, help us to abide together in your presence to know who you are. And that God, our lives would be the right response to the reality of your holiness. So that all may know that you are good and glorious. So Father, work in our hearts this morning and I pray that our response to you would be one that would honor you. So lead us in that through your spirit, I pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.